we are in week number four of this of Methodism 101, and and what and we've looked at uh, the place of Methodism in the history of the church. We've looked at the story of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, and how Wesley's experience and teaching have influenced the Methodist movement. We talked about last week about the distinctives about Methodist views of grace, that grace is the unifying theme of Methodist theology. Grace was over you before you were born. Grace will be over you until after you die. Uh, and, and that the matter of salvation is how we respond to God's grace and how God pours grace into our, into our lives. And so that was really exciting. And so I thought we thought this week we'd take it down a notch and we'd talk about church organization, church polity, ecclesiology. <laughs> and, and so uh, we're going to talk about that tonight. And, and the question is, you know, why would we spend a whole 50 minutes or how, however long talking about something? I gave you, there's a handout that went around, and that is basically the organization of the contemporary United Methodist Church. Don't worry about that right now. We'll get to it. We'll talk about how do we get to where it is. How does it, uh, there's so much. There, there are more in the middle table uh, next to Jackie and Albert. If you came in late, would like a copy, please take one. There should be enough for everyone. But why do we talk about that? Well, the truth is because for Methodists, uh, Methodism um, is a movement, began as a movement. Uh, Methodism began, uh, you know, it's interesting. When many of you may have come to the Methodist church, or many of you are asked by your non-Methodist friends about the Methodist Church, the, the first thing that you are probably asked or you asked is, what do Methodists believe? Right? Because, you know, you say, I'm a Methodist. Well, what do Methodists believe? Because for the most part, most Protestant churches were founded on a disagreement in belief. Luther disagreed with Rome. The uh, Anabaptists, which later became Baptists, they disagreed on baptism and the role of baptism with the established churches. Uh, Presbyterians disagreed with Episcopalian, with Anglicans, Episcopalians. Uh, and, and so most of the Protestant churches you and I are aware of usually got to start out of, out of disagreements in Ephesus about what they believe. Methodists, John Wesley had no problems with the views of the Church of England. He didn't disagree with the doctrines. He didn't look to change things. And so how did he start something different? What he started was a way that was a different way of being a Christian that held to what Anglicans always believed and taught. Uh, people asked him, what new doctrines do you have? He said, we have none. We believe what the church has always believed. Now, is that a little bit of Wesley's oversimplification, perhaps? Because like many things, we didn't have different beliefs, we have different emphases, different ways we think about it. And I know that sounds tricky, but I want to talk about, and so how we are Christians, how we practice Christianity, is what is unique to Methodism. Not necessarily what we believe. I'm going to say that with a caveat. We're going to talk about this a little more. Now, that has led to some extremes in Methodism. It was very fashionable in the middle of the 20th century. And so some of you, if you grew up in the Methodist church, you may have grown up in a tradition that said Methodists don't have, don't have specific beliefs. It doesn't matter what you believe, just how you practice. That's not true. That's not Wesley. That's not historical. And uh, in, in 1988, we clarified that that's not what we believe. And we have doctrinal standards. Next week, we're going to talk about what constitute the doctrinal standards of the United Methodist Church. So, but tonight, we're going to talk about our mission and how we accomplish it. Does anyone know what, did, what is the mission of the United Methodist Church? Mission, United Methodist Church has a mission statement. Does anyone know what it is? To make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Why don't we say that together? That's so important. Let's say that together. If you can read it off the screen. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And, and so what we're going to talk about tonight is how do we do that? How do you make a disciple? How do we, and, and not just how do you make a disciple one-on-one, -on -one, how do you make 10 million disciples? 
How do you make eight million disciples? And you do it one at a time, but also Wesley said, well, there are ways we can organize ourselves to be more effective in making disciples. Last week, or we talked about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a Methodist, but he was actually a Calvinist Methodist, so we talked a little bit about the disagreement that he and Wesley had. Whitfield was probably the greatest preacher of the 18th century. Benjamin Franklin said he was the best speaker he'd ever heard. And Benjamin Franklin, some of you may know, was no fan of organized religion, uh, especially of the, the kind of evangelical Christian variety. Uh, but he was, uh, he did have a soft spot for George Whitfield. He said he would always be careful when he went to hear Whitfield that he didn't have too much money in his pockets, <laughs> lest he gave it away to him. Whitfield was a superb preacher, but how many of you are familiar with the Whitfield Methodist Church? It doesn't really exist. I should have done a picture. I went and I found the, the Whitfield Chapel. There's one of them in London, and it's a building that seats about 300. Now, Wesley's Methodism is worldwide. What's the difference? What's the difference? The difference, now, this is supposedly what Whitfield says, but I can only find it in the stories of, of Wesley Methodist followers. So take it for what you will. Supposedly, Wes, Whitfield said, my brother Wesley acted wisely. The souls that were awakened under his ministry he joined in class and thus preserved the fruit of his labor. This I neglected, and my people are a rope of sand. So think about Wesley, Whitfield was the Billy Graham of the 18th century. He would have these huge groups as big as Billy Graham crusades, and many people would, uh, come, to, would come under conviction that they needed Christ. And so the next question is, what did they do? What, were, what, what options were there to do? Because if you come under conviction that you need Jesus and you go home, you might persist, but you might not. Wesley said, ah, what we need to do is we need to have an organization that will exist to help people become entire Christians. Last week we talked about this view of Wesley's view of salvation, this idea that salvation, uh, that, that uh, salvation uh, can, ha you know, justification, that being made right with God, does happen in a moment. It happens. I was talking to someone today, said, do Methodists just not believe that you can one moment be unsaved and the next moment be saved? I said, no, we believe that. But we believe that justification uh, is just the beginning. That God's will for your life is not just that you go to heaven and you die, although he does want that. But also that you can live as, 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 a, as a follower of Jesus and you're, you can become holy. And, and he says, and Wesley believed, you can't necessarily do that on your own. In fact, he said that a holy solitaire, person alone, makes as much sense as a holy adulterer. <laughs> and in a famous line that sometimes gets misused, he said, there is no, holy, no religion but social religion, no holiness but social holiness. Now what he meant there is some believe, and they're not entirely wrong, that that means that Christians ought to work for social justice in the world. And that is true, but that's not what he meant. He, what he meant was social holiness is we're not holy alone, we're holy together. If any of you seen on Facebook, I keep seeing this, so I expect some of you have this story. It's probably not true, but it's a preacher story, so what gets in the way of that? <laughs> the story that of, of a man who stopped going to church and the preacher went to visit him, and the man he found the man sitting in front of a fire, a coal fire in his fireplace. And they didn't say anything, but after a while, the preacher took the tongs and he took one of the coals out of the fire and set it off to the side. What happened to the coal he set aside? It went out and it got dark and got cold. And then a few minutes later, he took up the tongs and he put it back in the fireplace and it started glowing again. And the man who, visit, who he had visited said, Thank you, Pastor, for that enlightening message. I'll be in church on Sunday. <laughs> what was the message about? What did he say without saying anything? He said, When we separate from people, we can grow cold. Now, is there a place for personal devotion in the Christian life? Yes. 
But, and many of us, and I found living in Kentucky, there's a lot, and anywhere there's a lot, but especially here, the idea that, you know, I'm a Christian, but I do it in my own way. The golf course. I do it at the golf course by myself. You know, I see the beauty of God's creation. Uh, and, 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 you know, we, we kind of, but we sing with that, but that's a real, that's a real thing because, because being part of church is messy. People get hurt at church. People um, don't always get their way. And so it's easier to be alone. But, but Wesley said that we become Christians with each other. And so he was passionate about building a model of organization that would help people become the kind of people God wants them to be, and we can help each other. Now, that's the very basis of method of why we organize as a church. We organize to help each other be faithful followers of Jesus. And so what was Wesley's model? The original model is the society meetings. Wesley is under the influence of the Moravians and, and, and others that are called societies. And those are basically small group meetings outside of the established church, but also augmented with field preaching. Here's just a picture, and it's what you think it is. It, it's a man in a in robe and bands preaching out in the middle of the wilderness. <laughs> I'm not sure today if we went and preached outside we wear the robe, but... But in his day, that was a sign you were a preacher. You wore the robe and you wore the little white tabs. Have you ever seen those? Always wanted to wear one of those, but that seems too much here. Uh, maybe someday if you see it, you'll know I've gone into my full Neo Wesley phase. And so the goal of field preaching, what was, you know what the goal was? The goal was to convict people that they needed Jesus. That was the whole, that was the whole purpose of it. It wasn't even for people to receive forgiveness of sins. You know, we think of these crusade meetings as you go and you meet Jesus and you get forgiven. There, their, their goal was, no, that's too much to hope for. We're just going to hope that you come to this realization that there is a God and he's not you. And that that God is holy and you are not. That you need something. You're in trouble. That there is a God who will judge, come again to judge the quick and the dead. And you don't want to be there. And so, so the goal is to stir people up to know they need Jesus. And so they would join together in, in societies. And those were basically mid-sized group meetings. We're in about the size of most early societies. And they would come to, uh, they would sing, uh, they would hear a message. But the real genius of Methodism was not the society, but it was the band meeting. Now, this is all stuff that some of you have heard of, but most haven't, probably. And a band was kind of a forerunner of a small group, we might say today. Five to ten people, men with men, women with women. And the primary work of the societies was, so you joined a society, and then when you were in a society, they said, we need to get you into a band. Because you can hear the preaching and sing the songs, but what you really need is to connect with each other, and you need to admit to someone else that you're a sinner and you need help. Because if you've come and you've come out of that realization, you guys might help each other. And so uh, Dick Heitzerader said their primary activities were confession and prayer. Their goal was spiritual growth. You may have asked a moment ago, well, Sean, if if the goal if uh, they didn't receive forgiveness at the field preaching. At the invitation, when did they? It was many of them received it in their band meetings, because they would confess their sins and then they would proclaim to one another in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And so they would receive that justification there. They then later, Wesley created what were called select bands for those who had received forgiveness as a time to keep each other accountable, and penitential bands if band members started backsliding. Because, you know, we talked about that idea that, that, that as Wesleyans, we believe that you, you can lose faith, you can lose trust, you can fall away from God. But Wesley believed we're not going to let you. If you're going to go to, if you're, if you're going to backslide and you're going to fall uh, out of, uh, you're going to fall in, into the clutches of hell, you're going to have to go over us to get there. See, that, that was, that was he, had a, he had a plan for every station in life. And so, but then they had an issue. And right now, we're talking about the first two or, two or three years after Aldersgate and at the start of field preaching. So they ended up, the issue that churches sometimes have, a lot of people come to the big meetings, but then there were a lot of people who didn't go to the small group meetings. 
It's like here, you know, the number of people who come to worship versus the number who go to Sunday school. The worship and Sunday school are not quite the same, so please don't, don't make those, don't line those up necessarily in your mind because they really have different functions. And so they said, well, we got a lot of people, and we don't know what they're up to. They come to the meeting, they put on a good show, what's going on? Well, so, so they said, we need something in between. And at the same time, they were starting to build these preaching houses. You remember a few weeks ago, I showed, talked to you about the new room in Bristol and showed you the picture of that place. The new room, it turns out they built these on debt. And they needed to pay it off. And they said, we need to have a capital campaign. <laughs> well, basically what they said. <laughs> we need a debt reti retirement campaign. And one guy said, well, what we'll do is we'll go visit and we'll go ask for money from everyone in the society. And people said, well, you know, some of our people are really poor, and they won't be able to afford to give anything. And they said, well, we want everyone to give at least one penny. And, 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 he's, and the one guy who proposes, he says, you mark down the 12 poorest people, and I'll visit them, and if they can't give, I'll give for them. And so what they did is they divided societies into 12s and had a, someone who was called a, a leader to oversee the, them. And to go at first ask them for money. But later what they found is when they went to visit these people, now this never happens today. But they found they were living one way when they were at the society meeting, but in their house it was a different situation. That never happens, I know. Certainly no one in here that would be, uh, would be the case. And so they found this, and the, the, go the goal of this class leader was to oversee these 12 people and to help them. Where, to inquire about their spiritual state. And the class leader became the backbone of Methodism. I want to tell you a fact. Some of you know the founding of this church was 1783, and there were two people. You know who the two people were? Durham, Durham John Durham, and Francis Clark. Francis Clark. Francis Clark was a minister. John Durham was what? He was a class leader. Our church was founded in this model. He was a class leader. And so what happens is they create societies. Do you get it? Societies, classes, bands. And these societies had risen up all throughout England and even by the end of the 1740s they were in, in Ireland around Dublin. And these societies, they existed all over, and over, over that time, they kind of came together under the influence of Wesley. And in good Wesleyan way, he kind of systematized and organized these societies into what he called the United Societies. And Wesley was kind of the, the father of these societies. There, now, I want to say there were lots of societies. Some of them were in the Methodist tradition, but not under Wesley. And many others were Moravian and even Anglican religious societies. Religious societies were just, uh, they were, they were uh, parachurch, that is to say, beyond the local church, small or small, small, even large organizations. They weren't churches. They weren't even chapels. They weren't a Sunday morning thing like we think of church today. They were kind of a smaller group, a way to augment and, and add to the local Church of England. And Wesley's comes together, and when he comes, he, he travels by horseback and visits them. And when he goes, he examines them. The class leaders, are they doing their job? Are the preachers te preaching what is appropriate? He examines even the members. Are the members lazy in, in this society? And Wesley didn't hesitate to remove preacher, class leader, member who wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so to help them to, to know what they ought to be doing, Wesley wrote a book, and he wrote a lot of books. In fact, he was one of the most widely published authors of 18th century England. And he wrote it and called it The Nature, Design, and General Rules of the United Societies. So to standardize it, uh, general rules, those, those still exist. Wesley had but one rule for people who wanted to join a society, and that was to desire to flee from the wrath to come. You see, they were in, they had been awakened in the field preaching, and they had come under conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit that they, they that, that there was a God, and it wasn't Him. They weren't Him. And that, that God was holy, and they were not. 
that God was perfect and they were sinners and and they were awakened to their need uh, their, their that their need that they need help that there is going to be a judgment coming and they don't want to be there because they'll fall short and so to join the societies, remember we said a moment ago that most of the people who came and received forgiveness, justification, the assurance that, they, that their sins were forgiven happened not at the big outdoor preaching event, but happened in the band meeting. They happened after they joined the society. So you didn't have to profess faith in Christ to join the society, but simply a desire to flee from the wrath to come. But to stay in the society, again, you didn't have to profess faith in Christ, but you had to show that you were, that, that you were open and you were availing yourself of, of the means of grace and of the ways to grow closer to God. And so he created three general rules. They still exist. They're still part of our life together as Methodists, as United Methodists. And, and the three rules are do good, do no harm. And do no harm doesn't mean don't don't uh, do mean things to people or don't hurt people. What it, do no harm means don't sin. You can harm yourself, and so uh, not being drunk that was part of do no harm. Don't drink heavily. Don't drink to excess. Uh, don't drink uh, distilled liquors. That was do no harm. And the third. Uh, was to attend to the ordinances of God. That is, go to church, be in prayer, read the scriptures. Wesley believed that when we wait, we don't just sit around, but we wait using the means, the ways that God had given us. And so he said, you need, if you do those things, you can stay. And this network of societies... Wesley started Wesley and his followers started calling them a connection and that's got a funny spelling C O N N you get that E X I O N and that's a spelling we still use today just to describe United Methodism we are a connection and we are a connectional church and so one of the ways they connected within these united societies was that they gathered in what they called a conference Conference, conferences of clergy were not uncommon in the 18th, 17th and 18th century in the Church of England, but this was a Methodist conference, and they gathered the Methodist preachers together. Now, that included both the ordained priests of the Church of England that were in the movement and the lay preachers. That was a big difference. It was said that John Wesley's influence led to that, and but they did not include lay people or class leaders. It was the preachers and the priests, the presbyters, the, the elders of the Church of England came together. And they came together in 1744. And Wesley said, we'll talk about just three questions. First, what to teach. That represents the importance of, of doctrine. How are we going to teach the doctrine of the Church of England? How are we going to express our views? And second is how to teach uh, how are we going uh, to, where are we going to teach, and how are we going to do it in the fields and in the society houses and even in the local churches? And third, what to do? How are we going to be organized? So early Methodism had both a concern for doctrine, that is what we teach, but also organization, how we teach. Uh, that, is, that concern for both underlies the Methodist movement, both what and how. And then they do that in 1744, and I guess they must have had so much fun that the next year, 1745, they decide we'll do it again, and we're going to make it an annual event. And they called that an annual conference. Now, those of you who know United Methodism will know that term. Annual conference exists to this day and is the very basic block of our connected life together, the annual conference and at that conference in 1745, one of their main purposes was whether preachers and members could continue. They examined them and looked over their fruits and were they, were they living up to what they said? Were they themselves following those three general rules of the church? Incidentally, there was a book about the three general rules uh, written uh, probably 20 years ago by Bishop Reuben Job, who is uh, now deceased. And he wrote that third one is stay in love with God. That's very popular. It's not what Wesley said. And, and it's true, but Wesley meant that.
but he made it clear it wasn't stay in love with God in a, just an emotional, affective way yourself, but to use those means that I, I just can't emphasize that enough, so I'm t- saying it again. Uh, so by the 1750s, what we see is Methodism is, mm-hmm. is a maturing uh, movement. And so as that comes, they, they start to create more standards set for preachers and doctrine and meeting places. Wesley has pamphlets for all of these. And we find in the 1750s there is what we call the trust clause. That still exists, and that's a somewhat controversial in Methodism. Uh, trust clause, that started because there was a preaching house that belonged to one of these united societies, and the preacher there was preaching doctrine that Wesley believed was not Methodist. And so Wesley said, well, we got to get rid of this guy. Remember, Wesley oversaw these preachers and class leaders, and when he did, he found the people in the society, they liked what their preacher was saying, and they said, well, we're, we're, we're going this way. And Wesley said, well, you may go this way, but this, but, but we, won't, we want our preaching houses in the United Societies to preach what we teach. And so he added, and on advice, what was called now the trust clause, and that is what United Methodists live under today, which is that local churches own their property. If you were to go down to the PVA's office and you were to look in their books, you would see that this property is owned by Centenary United Methodist Church trustees. But we own it in trust. That is to say that we, uh, that, that we own it on a trust for the wider church. That, uh, that holds us accountable to being part of the wider church. And so when we wanted to build this new building, we had to ask the annual conference for permission. When we want to borrow debt against this building, we have to ask the annual conference. When we bought the five acres four, almost four years ago behind us, going back to the tree line, we went to the annual conference for permission because what we own is in trust for the conference. And so, in that, so that grows in England, but as we've talked about, and one thing that I think is always kind of an unusual thing to, for most people aren't aware of, is that Methodism was not founded as a church, was not founded as a denomination. In fact, it only became a denomination or a separate church when it went to America. Now, why did that happen? Well, we know that in England they had a state church, and Wesley was a loyal member of that even to the day he died. And Methodism was a reform movement within the state church. Well, in America, where it had come in the 1760s, mostly in Delaware and Eastern Shore, Maryland, it had come to America, but after the Revolutionary War, there was no England to oversee it, and there was no state church. So how can you be a renewal movement when there's no church to renew? And so they said there are these Methodists that are in societies, in classes. In fact, they were the earliest class was here in Danville at Centenary. Our forerunner to Centenary was before there was an independent Methodist denomination. It was just a, it was a society and class setup before. And so in uh, so they said, well, Wesley said, in the strange providence of God, God has decided that the Americans should be free. He opposed the Revolutionary War. He was a good Tory Anglican. And so he says, well, we've got to have preachers. And so they went to the bishops and asked for, can we, can we ordain priests to send to offer the sacraments? Because, you see, they, they could, lay people could preach in the Church of England, but they couldn't celebrate baptism and Holy Communion. And the bishops refused. And in fact, we find that, that if you were to take the oath of ordination in the Church of England, you, you had to be loyal to the crown. This was actually a problem for the continuing Anglicans who became Episcopalians in the United States. When they wanted to ordain a bishop, they couldn't. And so they ended up actually going to bishops in Scotland that were called the non-juring bishops. And they were ones that they didn't have that in their ordination. So even the American Anglicans, Episcopalians, they trace their ancestry back to Scotland rather than England. That's totally off the mark, totally off the beaten path there. But it's interesting to explain why why there could not be provided under what might have been quote unquote legitimate circles uh, priests for America. And so what met, and so at the same time. Uh, so then they're going to become an independent church. Now, and a church is different from a society. 
Wesley was an Anglican, and the Anglican Articles of Religion talked about a society, a church, as opposed to society. Church is a community of faithful people where the word is proclaimed and the sacrament duly administered. And so it, it, what that means is two or three people or a dozen people just gathering together. That doesn't mean church. Church happens when the people gather, and it is people-centered, certainly not building-centered, but it is gathered when people gather, but under word and sacrament. And so they have to have word and sacrament. And so Wesley uh, provides the framework of a church. He, the churches have doctrine in his Anglican experience, and so he takes what are the called the still to this day the 39 articles of the Church of England. He trims them to 25, which is well worth, and we'll talk about that next week, I think, a little bit. It went from 39 to 25. It's interesting what he changed. And then he also provided an order of worship, a prescribed order. If you'll remember in the Church of England, the rule was to be a church, you had to follow the Book of Common Prayer. That's from the Act of Uniformity in 1662. And the and, and in fact, remember, both of Wesley's grandfathers were expelled, for, were fired from their jobs as priests in the Church of England because they refused to do that. But Wesley was a believer in the Book of Common Prayer for Sunday worship. And so he sent it. It was called the Sunday Service. So he gave them articles of religion and an order of worship, but just the same as the Church of England, but with a Methodist flavor. In fact, he altered the Book of Common Prayer, but I don't really see why and how the things he did. I think he mainly worked to make the services shorter, more than with any particular Methodist doctrine in them. But you, So you've got articles of religion, you've got order of worship, but now you need ministers. And as we said, there were no priests. The, the, lawyer, the Anglican priests, they had all sworn loyalty to the crown, and so they either gave up their orders or they went back to England. And so Wesley saw America as shepherds, as sheep without a shepherd. Meanwhile, at the same time, he was studying the scriptures, and in the scriptures, he saw it said, uh, he, he noticed that there were two words that seemed to be used. One was episkopos, meaning and translated overseer or bishop by Paul in the New Testament. And they were the ones that oversaw churches. And then there was another word, presbyteros, presbyter, elder. It's where you get the word Presbyterian, rule by elders. Presbyter, elder. And he said, boy, when Paul uses those, they're different words, but it sure looks like Paul is talking about the same thing. And so he says, well, you know what? I'm ordained a presbyter, an elder. Well, I must also then be a bishop. And so I could ordain people too, and he does. He ordains Thomas Koch. His brother Charles is furious because Charles believes in the Anglican three orders of ministry. A deacon is not a priest. A priest is not a bishop. A deacon is not a bishop. And there are three distinct orders. And, and Catholics and Episcopalians hold to that even to this day. But Methodists, we hold to a two-order ministry, deacons and presbyters or elders and so, and in fact, to this day, we have, you say, well, but don't we have bishops in the United Methodist Church? We do, but our bishops are not a distinct order. They are not ordained bishops. They are elders who serve and are elected to serve that role. It is, a, I know it's a small difference, uh, but, for, but for Wesley, it made all the difference. That, and in fact, but I will say at the same time, Wesley opposed calling them bishops. He refused, it, it, Wesley famously said, uh, Men may call me a fool or a knave, but they will never call me bishop. But he ordains Coke to come to be a bishop, a superintendent, and he is sales. And in, in the Christmas conference, uh, the famous first conference of Methodism, on one day they ordain Francis Asbury deacon, the second day is priest, elder, presbyter, and the third day consecrate him as a bishop of the New Methodist Church, the fastest rise up the hierarchy of the church in history, of the Methodist church in history. Three days. And, Wes, and Asbury then is the, the apostle of American Methodism and travels everywhere. And he ordains more, more, more men as elders, priests, presbyters, and more bishops, some famous early bishops like McKendry, uh, famous in this part of the country, the big Methodist church in downtown Nashville is called McKendry United Methodist Church. There's a McKendry University. 
And uh, so there are these early bishops, and they, they form as an independent church. And over time, this American independent church, British Methodism goes independent eventually, but later, after Wesley dies. This is during Wesley's lifetime. But remember, Wesley sends Coke over, but he never comes to the United States. He's been to the United States one time, and that's to go to Georgia in the 1730s. But he does not come back. He doesn't come to personally oversee the American Methodist church. He stays with his English Methodist renewal movement. And so with these trappings in the independent church, over time it grows and a lot of influence for the polity of Methodism. Methodism keeps this idea of being organized. It's famously said Methodism is organized to beat the devil. And it is organized uh, to help make disciples. But the American church organization, while following that same idea, is not organized quite the same as, as early Wesleyan organizations. So you've heard me talk about bands, classes, and societies, and you're thinking, I've been a Methodist my whole life. I've never heard of any of these. Mm -hmm. Wait, except mm -hmm. classes. That's like Sunday school, right? Well, not really. And so we've taken on a polity in America that is, in fact, uh, not the same as Wesley's because Wesley's polity was for a society and not a church. And so a church takes on a little more formality. And being Americans, Methodism takes on over time has evolved into something that looks a lot like American politics, which may or may not have been the best idea we ever had. But here it is. And so when you look at the layout of Methodism, and there is a handout uh, that goes with this, you will notice that American Methodism has three branches of governance. You want to guess what those are? That we've got executive, legislative, and what? Judicial. Three branches. You've heard of that. You're like, I've heard that in civics class somewhere. And we have an executive branch, and that is our bishops. And legislative branch are our various levels of conferences. And the judicial branch is the judicial council. That was the latest to gather. And it began in 1934 in what was once called the Methodist Episcopal Church South and regularized in the 1939 Methodist merger between South, North, and what we'll talk about in a minute, the Methodist Protestant Church. And so the layout of the church is the biggest part is the legislative. That is the, the strongest part of Methodism. It is not three equal branches. I don't want you to think that like the American government. There are checks and balances, but the conferences run are, have the ultimate authority in Methodism. And conferences exist at every level from the local church to the worldwide church. At the... Uh, at the um, the, the, the biggest one is called the General Conference. It meets every four years, always during presidential election years, which inserts, it, it, it appears, a degree of politics that maybe we weren't looking for, I'll be honest, originally in, in Methodism. We don't know that for, for sure. That may not have anything to do with it. There are some who believe it does, though. And that is uh, people from around the world, and that is the highest order. That is the only body that can speak for Methodism. If that's one thing you remember tonight, it'll be worth the whole price of admission. That General Conference is the only body that speaks for Methodism. And it speaks once every four years. So if you see on the news or New York Times or Fox News or CNN, uh, you see that there's some group that says something about Methodism, and it's not in one of those four years, do those people speak for Methodism? The answer is no, they don't. Only General Conference can speak for Methodism. General Conference fixes our standards of ordination. They fix even our stances on social issues. And I mention those two because those are the ones that tend to have the hot button that you see on the news in Methodism. They fix our, con our budget, what committees we will have, the organization of the church. All that is done at the General Conference that meets every four years. The Jurisdictional Conference is, is uh, below it. And that exists in the, and that's in the American church. Overseas, our overseas churches are also part of the General Conference. It's a worldwide gathering. In fact, uh, almost half of Methodists, did you know, live outside the United States, most of them on the continent of Africa. And all of us come together, but the, the jurisdictional conferences are only in the United States. The, when they're overseas, those, their jurisdictions are called central conferences, and they're slightly different. But in the, we'll talk about the United States. There are five, Southeast, Northeast, North Central, South Central, and Western. 
Uh, we are in the southeastern jurisdiction, but we're the kind of the northwesternmost. Uh, the, the, it is roughly, roughly equivalent to the area of the Southeastern Conference in football. I, I know that that'll probably be what, what you'll remember, it, but it also includes uh, Virginia and North Carolina. So there's a little bit of the ACC in there as well. Uh, so they gather, and the point of the jurisdictional conference, for the most part, not ex entirely, is to elect bishops. Bishops prior to 19, the 1939 merger, they were elected at the general conference at the international level. But when the northern and the southern churches that had split right before the Civil War over, guess what, but slavery, they came together. The northern church was significantly larger. And so the southern church said, well, if we merge and we elect bishops at general conference, you'll give us a bunch of Yankee bishops. We can't do it. We won't merge if, we, if we're just going to have a bunch of Yankee bishops running the show. And so they made an agreement that there would be five jurisdictions plus a regrettable segregated jurisdiction for all the black churches called the central jurisdiction and those jurisdictions would elect their own bishops so white churches would all have white bishops but northern churches have northern bishops southern churches have southern bishops western churches have western bishops midwestern churches have midwestern bishops and so on and so forth and they don't necessarily have to be from those jurisdictions but they are elected by those jurisdictions and 99 times out of 100 they've been from those jurisdictions there are some notable examples um, so those jurisdictions, they elect the bishops. And so the Council of Bishops exists as all the bishops around the world, and then each jurisdiction has a college of bishops, and they hold the bishops accountable. We've had some, had some questions about that. But the church has said only each jurisdiction is responsible for its own bishops and its own standards for, for its own enforcement of standards, I should say, uh, for bishops. And so the bishops and the conferences come together, and with the bishops, there are committees at the jurisdictional level. It's called the Jurisdictional Committee on the Episcopacy. And in the annual conferences, in the Committee on the Episcopacy for each Episcopal area, and those are committees where members of the annual conference, jurisdictional conferences come together with the bishops to hold them accountable, like a staff parish relations committee. Uh, or a or a cabinet, a bishop's cabinet. Jurisdictional committee on the episcopacy is a lay person, a clergy person from every episcopal area in that jurisdiction. An episcopal area is roughly the same as an annual conference, but not exactly. And, and for example, in Kentucky, we are Kentucky conference is all of Kentucky except the Purchase region, which is in the Memphis annual conference, which is soon to merge with the Tennessee conference to form the Tennessee Western Kentucky, which is not the most originally named annual conference one could imagine. And they will they will come together, uh, and so they they come and so all those people come together and they share with this committee what each conference is looking for in a bishop and what they are not looking for. So a little like a staff parish relations recommendation. And so they come together and they agree which bishops will go to which, uh, which, which Episcopal areas annual conferences. And within each annual conference, there's a committee on the Episcopacy, uh, and it works with the resident bishop. It is kind of their evaluation and planning and their support group within each annual conference, and that comes from members of the annual conference. And so you see there's ways that, that they work together, checks and balances, accountability and support that is at the hallmark of our Methodist structure. And so how, who belongs to each one? Who goes to each of these levels of conferences? Well, the basic conference level is the charge conference or the church conference. Church conference is every member of the local church, but most of the time we handle what are called charge conferences. Charge conferences, a charge is uh, the area to which a pastor is appointed. And we are in a one charge, one church charge, just Danville Centenary. We're the Danville Centenary Church and Danville Centenary Charge. I previously served a charge that was two churches. And so there were two independent churches, but they came together as one charge. In uh, some charge, I've heard of charges as many as six or even eight, which strikes me as an incredible administrative structure. And so the charge conference in a local church includes every member of the, of the church council or administrative council, however it's structured. In addition, the appointed pastors, and here that's me and Pastor Chris, and then our uh, and then also all the retired and extension pastors 
Uh, here at, and I'll, I, I'm afraid I'll forget someone. Here at Centenary, our extension pastors are Dr. Mike Voigts, who was once our senior pastor, who is professor at Asbury Seminary, and Reverend Christine Ross, who is the chaplain at the Kentucky Children's Hospital in Lexington. They are ordained clergy, but they have their charge conference membership with us. All clergy have to have a charge conference membership somewhere, no matter where they serve. If you're appointed, that's where your charge conference membership is, if you're appointed that church or that charge. And then also all the retired clergy. And those retired clergy here are Garnet Sloan and Dr. Quentin Schultz. And so those two, th those two gather with the extension ministers, the appointed pastors, and the members of the church council, and they form the charge conference. And then from each charge, the pastors who are appointed and the retired pastor and the extension pastors, they are members of the district conference and the annual conference. And in addition, the lay people of the church elect uh, as many representatives annual conferences you have pastors appointed. So there's two here, so we have two, Tom and Mort. They go to the annual conference as delegates from this, from this charge, this church. So the annual conference gathers, and it gathers under the principle of 50% laity, 50% clergy. So we've got two clergy, two laity. And now you're like, but aren't there four other pastors in our church? One, most churches don't have other pastors, to be fair. And, and second, uh, what they do is then they want to balance it. So each district then is responsible for a number of what we call equalization delegates so that when we get to annual conference, the number of clergy and the number of laity are exactly the same. There, that is a tradition in Methodism that we hold together, that clergy-laity balance. Now, it's not always been that way. That came out of the 1939 merger because one of them was called the Methodist-Protestant Church. Now, the Methodist-Protestant Church, they, had, they broke off in the early 19th century because they believed, they want over things like they wanted to be able to appeal the bishop's appointments. They wanted to be able to have a say in the annual conference. They wanted to be able to tell the bishop where to go. And the bishop said, no, you're not getting that. It's clergy only. And so they said, well, if we're not going to be part of something where we don't have a say, and so some churches withdrew and they created the Methodist Protestant Church. It was always smaller, and those that remained were called the Methodist Episcopal Church, which is ruled by bishops. And so in 1939, when they came together, the Methodist Protestants said, you remember that thing we had about lay people having equal say with clergy? We meant it. And so we're not going to merge if we can't have that. And the Methodist Episcopal Church, which had split north and south, they said they were influenced by progressive views on democracy from the early 20th century. They said, you know, we ought to have lay people involved. And so in 1939, it became regularized, this idea of half lay people, half clergy. So annual conference, and then from annual conference, we elect delegates from our annual conference, which is Kentucky, we elect to the general and jurisdictional conference. People ask me, are you going to the general conference? I said, no, I'm not a delegate. Not every member of, of the annual conference, not every pastor can go to the general conference. It's not a democracy necessarily of those who go the way it is in say, the Southern Baptist Convention, although I am not an expert on Southern Baptist life, so please don't necessarily quote me on that. But you have to be elected, and it's a high honor to be elected. And so we elect five, we elect five clergy and five laity. Remember, 50-50. The clergy vote for clergy. The laity vote for laity to, rep to be their delegates at the general and jurisdictional conference. We do five and five general jurisdictional conferences. Jurisdictions are smaller. We elect 10 and 10. And the first five, the five that go to general conference are the first five for jurisdictional conference. And we did that last year. And sometimes it's a pretty easy process. And sometimes, frankly, like last year in our conference, it is political and rancorous. And um, so we did that, though. And then and the general and jurisdictional conference will be 50-50. And so about 850 delegates will gather next May in Minneapolis for the general conference. And then in, May, and then in June, I believe, they will, that in the southeastern jurisdiction, they will gather at Lake Junaluska, North Carolina, and they will elect bishops, and we'll be looking for five. And, so, and then in addition, in bishop elections, each annual conference then endorses a candidate for bishop usually. Some endorse more than one, which is usually doesn't mean that any of them get elected, to be honest. 
Uh, and then other outside groups also can endorse candidates for election as bishop. And uh, then, then those delegates elect at the jurisdictional conference. I know that sounds, that's a lot. Uh, but the idea is, is uh, the, the conferences exist as a clergy laity balance. In fact, charge conference is dominated by laity. Uh, but the rest are 50-50, and then our bishops are the executive, and then between the general conference and the council of bishops, share responsibility for what are called the general agencies, and then there's something else called the connectional table. Connectional table is part bishops, part clergy, part laity. The general agencies are largely clergy and laity, but a bishop chairs them. The general agencies are a way that we, uh, we make disciples in a big picture way. So there's like the board of discipleship that helps equip local churches. There's the board of church and society that, that is a, kind of a lobbying group in Washington, D.C. that shares Methodist social views uh, with, uh, with, our, with our nation's leaders. In fact, we have a building right on Capitol Hill. We're the only non-government building that close, and it's the United Methodist Building, and that's where the board of church and society is. We have the Board of Pensions and Health Benefits, one of my favorite organizations because I'd like to retire someday and, and not starve when I do. And they hold the pension and, uh, and they, hold, they oversee the health plans of our denomination. So there are these general agencies that have, again, connection between general conference and our council of bishops. And then in addition, I've talked about two branches. The third is the Judicial Council. It began in 1934 in the Southern Church, Methodist Church, and came to be part of the whole system in 1939. And that is to hear appeals. Um, that, that is to hear appeals from clergy and laity of decisions bishops make and, and conflicts within the church. And it exists like a Supreme Court. And there are uh, a number of people, and they are elected by the General Conference. You see, the General Conference is the supreme leader. They elect the Judicial Council, and then the Jurisdictional Conferences elect the Council of Bishops. So in a way, it's not like three parallel tracks, but it is. But they, they do give checks and balances. And frequently, the Judicial Council rules that actions General Conference takes are what are called unconstitutional. But if something is unconstitutional, it can still be passed if general conference passes and then two th and then two thirds of the members of all the annual conferences around the world again it looks a lot like our nation's constitution i think intentionally so so that's just a quick overview of the organization of Methodism. Methodism believes in organization. Methodism believes that our mission is so important that we have to have ways. We don't achieve our mission by accident. We don't make disciples just here and there in scattershot ways. We want to be organized together to have a systematic way to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And so we try to do things in systematic and organized ways as United Methodists because we take our mission so seriously. And we believe that when you make disciples in ways that you connect people with the church and with one another. And so thank you tonight. Thanks for being part of this great organization called the United Methodist Church, where we uh, have a plan and a mission in a way that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world.